Well, welcome to Renaissance. It's great to see you guys here on this beautiful uh, January morning, I mean uh, March morning, a little bit chilly out there this morning, but uh, it's great. My name's Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just really exciting that uh, you guys are able to be with us uh, this morning. So let me ask you, you ever been to one of those uh, dinner parties where you're getting together with people, a lot of whom you don't know, and the host decides that he or she wants to ask one of those kind of dinner table questions like, if you could have dinner with anybody in the whole world, you know, in, in all the way down through history, who would that person be? You ever go to one of those sorts of things where they do that as an icebreaker? I've been to those, and honestly, my answer is always Jesus, right? I mean, I'm a pastor. My answer is supposed to be Jesus. Everybody kind of rolls their eyes because, yep, the pastor's going to say it's Jesus, and sure enough, I do. But honestly, that would be the one person throughout history that if I could choose, I would want to have dinner with Jesus. George Washington, yes, I'd love to ask him, you know, what it was like during the Revolutionary War and being the first president, knowing that, you know, you've got this whole issue of, of you know, president versus king and, and that whole thing, or Abraham Lincoln, what was it like for him to deal with uh, the Civil War, knowing that this war is dividing the country, but it's for a good cause and all those different things. Amelia Earhart, I'd like to ask her, you know, what was she doing? Where is she? What happened, you know, at the end, if you could, if you could meet with her? Rosa Parks, what was it like for her to take that civil rights stand? What was it like? Did she feel like everybody was against her? Did she have friends with her? You know, all sorts of questions like that that I would love to ask these people if I could have dinner with them. But if I could choose anybody down throughout history, it would have to be Jesus of Nazareth. Think about it this way. Imagine what it would be, what it would have been like to have been one of Jesus' disciples spending pretty much every day for like three, three and a half years with him. You know, in the morning, he heals somebody. In the afternoon, he's arguing with the religious leaders. And in the evening over dinner, he's asking you the most penetrating questions that anybody has ever asked you. You know, and then the next day, he feeds 5,000 people. And you're like, how does he do it? And then what's he going to do tomorrow? And then when you're with him, just one-on-one, it's like there is nobody else in the world besides you and him. You ever, have you ever been in one of those conversations where you're talking to somebody and you, you figure they're always looking over your shoulder or their brain is elsewhere? They're not with you. They care more about themselves. All they want to do is talk about themselves or they're thinking about somebody else or whatever it is. That never happens with Jesus because he's always penetrating. He's always looking right at you and you know that he cares more about you than you could ever imagine. And even in some sort of really difficult to understand sense, you get the feeling that he cares more about you than you care about yourself. And it's hard to put that into words. And so you just want to be with this man because he's so amazing. He's so different than anybody else. And that's what I imagine it was like for his disciples, for his closest followers, to spend every day with him for for about three, three and a half years. But every once in a while, when they're together, 
Jesus would say something to them that probably made them feel a little bit uncomfortable. He said to them, the day is going to come when I'm going to leave you. And everybody knows we all die. And so they're probably thinking that about Jesus. But he's taking it a step further. And he's saying, the day is going to come when I'm going to leave you. And once in a while, he even says, I'm going to be killed. But it seemed like the disciples didn't quite get this. And I don't know if it's that they didn't understand it or they didn't want to understand it. They didn't want to believe it because this man was so amazing and so powerful that they couldn't believe that the day was going to come when he wasn't going to be with them anymore. And then Thursday of what we call Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life, Thursday came, Jesus and his disciples, they're gathered upstairs in a room, they're celebrating the Jewish Passover together, which they had done most likely several times before. So it's a tradition that the Jews had, celebrating Passover, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. And and Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's giving them some thoughts, and they're beginning to think something's going on here. And he says to them, the day is going to come tomorrow when I'm going to leave you. And they can't believe it. And they're just so unbelievably upset at what has happened. And John, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the men who wrote a biography of Jesus, he was there that night and he records what happened in John chapter 16, starting at verse five. He says, Jesus says, now I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going back to my father. I'm going back up to heaven. But none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. Of course, they're filled with grief because this is the man who made more difference in their lives than maybe everybody else put together. This amazing, incredible man who cared for them, who loved them more than anybody else, who worked all these incredible miracles, whose teaching was spellbinding, never boring, always interesting. We want to hear more, Jesus. And he's saying, I'm going away. And they're upset over this. And if you've ever lost a loved one, a parent, a a brother, sister, child, even a close friend, you can feel the grief that the disciples are feeling at this point. But then Jesus says something past that. He says something that's Frankly, it's kind of hard to believe. It's kind of hard to understand. He says, very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good that I'm going away. Seriously, Jesus, if I'm one of the disciples, seriously, it's for our good that you're going away? No, Jesus, it would be for our good if you were to say, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to be with you forever. How can it be for our good that you're going away? You know, some people, it's for our good if they go away. Jesus is not one of them. Kelly Clarkson wrote a song, Since You've Been Gone. I don't know who she was writing about, but she's saying, my life is so much better since you've been gone. I don't believe it was about Jesus. It was about some guy. Actually, a whole bunch of her songs on that album seem to be about this same guy. Uh, But the disciples are like, there is no way we want you, Jesus, to go away. And then... He continues on and he says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Unless I go away, the advocate, and we'll explain that in just a minute, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. 
So who is this advocate? Who's this person that Jesus is talking about that it's good that Jesus goes away so that this advocate will come? The disciples knew because Jesus had actually told them earlier that evening who this advocate was. Back a couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you and he will be with you forever, the spirit of truth. He's referring to what we refer to as the Holy Spirit, the person, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that this advocate, this one who is going to be your helper, who's going to comfort you and encourage you, is the promised Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus continues, he says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he'll be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father, you're in me, and I am in you. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard of the divine trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been around church before, this is actually one of the the most difficult theological concepts for us to wrap our minds around. This idea that there's one God, but he manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get the Father part of God, the Father aspect of God, right? Whenever you're reading through the Bible and God is referred to, most of the time that's referring to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. We also, to a large extent, get the Son, Jesus. So Jesus comes to earth. He's fully God, but he comes to earth, takes on the form of a human being, lives, suffers, dies, rise again. We get that because we've read in the New Testament all about Jesus. But the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we don't always get who this Holy Spirit is. Depending on your background, you may be pretty excited about the Holy Spirit, or you may be afraid of the Holy Spirit, or you may be just like clueless about the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people kind of view the Holy Spirit kind of like the force in Star Wars. Great movies coming out. Again, I think it's December. If Harrison Ford can keep from crashing airplanes, hopefully they'll be able to finish the, uh, the filming of that. Love Star Wars uh, when I was a kid. But this concept of the force, this impersonal thing, ethereal kind of air uh, throughout the universe, that's not what the Holy Spirit is. When you read throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is as much of a person as God the Father is, as much of a person as Jesus is. So the Holy Spirit is a personal being. He's just not physical the way in which Jesus manifested himself. So Jesus came to the earth as a human being. People could see him. People could talk to him. People could touch him. His realness was apparent to everybody. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away, and when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, not physically, but spiritually. And we're so caught up in the physical realities of this world that it's hard for us to get our minds around the the fact that the Holy Spirit can be just as real as Jesus is, even though he doesn't manifest himself physically in a way that we can see and touch and hear him. So the Holy Spirit is a person, and Jesus sent him 
to be with us, to be in us, and ultimately to carry on the work that Jesus began for us, that he began to do when he was here on the earth. And he's, this is Thursday night when he's explaining the Holy Spirit to his disciples. The next day, Good Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. And so he dies on the cross to pay for our sins, and the Holy Spirit comes to apply what Jesus did, to apply that to our hearts, to make a difference in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Continue on in John chapter 16, Jesus says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people don't believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So Jesus is saying he's going to convict the world. And you hear that and you're like, that doesn't sound too good. I don't like this idea that Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit in order to convict us. And that's because when we hear the word convict, it's got this negative connotation. It's got this connotation of like proving us to be guilty, saying there's something wrong with you, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit, at least it seems at first, and we don't like that. But that's only partially true. Yes, it's true that the Holy Spirit is going to come and going to say to, to convict us that yes, We're sinful. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we're fallen. Yes, we do things wrong. But we know that already, right? You ever say something to somebody and you're just like, man, that was stupid and I hurt this person who I care about and you feel convicted inside? That can be the work of the Holy Spirit in you, convicting you that what you did, what you said, or maybe what you didn't do, that what you did was wrong and was displeasing to God. So that kind of a conviction can be the work of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. The work of the Spirit doesn't stop there. There's also the conviction that Christ has made provision for us, that his sacrifice pays for our sins, that his sacrifice removes the guilt. So it's kind of like if you're going to a doctor, right? You go to the doctor, you don't want the doctor to tell you that something's wrong with you because it's not good to find out that you've got some sort of a disease or a malady or something that's wrong. But yet, ultimately, if you step step back from it, you say, yeah, you know what? If I am sick, the only way that I'm going to get better is if somebody tells me what's wrong and gives me a prescription or some other treatment to take care of it. So in the same way, the Holy Spirit diagnoses the problem that we have, sin, convicts us of it and says, you know what? You are a sinner. You are fallen. You are broken. The way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you act isn't always right. It isn't always pleasing to God. But he does it not to heap guilt on us, not to make us feel worse about ourselves, but because if we don't know that there's something wrong, we're never going to look to the one who can heal us, the one who can forgive us, the one who can remove our guilt. So in the same way that you go to the doctor to find out if there's anything wrong so that it can be taken care of, we go to the Holy Spirit, we go to God to find out if there's anything wrong so that he can take care of it. And that's what Jesus did on the cross on Good Friday. When he died on the cross, he died for our sins 
not to heap guilt and condemnation on us, but to free us from guilt and to free us from condemnation. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us, yes, there's a negative aspect, but there's also an incredibly positive aspect, which is why he's referred to as the advocate or in other translations, the helper, or in even other translations as the comforter because he advocates for us. He speaks on our behalf saying that Jesus has paid for our sins. He helps us by pointing out where we're falling short, but pointing us ultimately to Jesus so that we can trust in him and receive that forgiveness, receive that healing, receive that peace. He comforts us by reminding us about how much God loves us and how much God cares for us and how much he wants to work in us for our good and ultimately as well for his glory. But the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't just stop with the convicting, with the the feeling that, yes, I'm not living the right way. Jesus has forgiven my sins, but I've still got this frustration. And this is actually brought on, I think, as well by the Holy Spirit, this conviction that I ought to want to live a better life. But there are those times when I just can't do it. And I don't know what what the habits and difficulties and proclivities that you have are. I've got mine. Each of us, if we examine our lives, we see that, you know what? We make the same mistakes over and over and over again. We hurt the same people in the same ways over and over and over again. And is there any hope for change in our lives? And yes, the answer is yes, because the Holy Spirit in us can work in us to change our hearts and to change our behavior. Back in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, which is a really amazing and really bizarre book, if you've ever read through it, there's all this imagery in there that's so strange. You've got these wheels with eyes all over them and different things moving around and these different living creatures. And this is really interesting kind of a book. They could make a movie out of it, kind of a science fiction movie about it. And it's all talking about how great and how glorious God is. But there's this passage kind of two-thirds of the way through the book of Ezekiel that Jesus' disciples, being Jews, would have been familiar with. And if they kind of had their thinking caps on that Passover evening, that Thursday evening, they might have remembered this particular verse in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Sounds a lot like what Jesus was doing in terms of cleansing us from our sins. But watch what happens next. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. This is in the Old Testament before Jesus had come to be on the earth. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel is that we who today would be called followers of Jesus, we who are looking to him, who realize that Christ has made the provision for us, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, not just convicting us of where we fall short, not just convincing us that what Jesus has done has provided for us, but ultimately working in our hearts to change our hearts, to give us the desire to live the right way, to follow after God, and then enabling us to do that. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you think back to think back over your life, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any period of time, I think you may 
you can remember how God has worked in your life to give you a greater and greater desire to live the way that it is that he wants you to live and to give you a greater and greater ability to do that. And I think of, I think of the apostle Peter. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. Jesus was on trial before the Jewish uh, religious authorities. Peter's downstairs, he's outside in the courtyard of the high priest while Jesus is upstairs on trial. This servant girl comes to, to Peter and says, you were with him. And Peter's like, no, I don't know who you're talking about. And she's like, no, I can tell from your accent that you're from Galilee like Jesus was. He's like, I don't know who you're talking about. And three times Peter denies Jesus. And if you read throughout the Gospels, Peter is constantly opening his mouth before he engages his mind. He inserts his foot in it, and later on, he regrets it. And he does this over and over and over again. And after he denies Jesus, he's convicted that I can't believe I just did that. And a couple of weeks later, Jesus makes it very clear that Jesus has forgiven Peter for what he's done. And then, if you start reading in the book of Acts, after Jesus had gone back up into heaven, after the Holy Spirit had come, and you look and you see Peter in the book of Acts, and you compare Peter in Acts to Peter in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you say, is this the same guy? Is this the same open mouth, insert foot, deny Jesus kind of guy who we read about in the Gospels? And you realize, no, there's been an incredible change in Peter. Peter now preaches boldly. He's not afraid to identify himself with Jesus. He gets thrown in jail a couple of times because he's been telling people about Jesus. Peter ends up writing a number of letters to different Christians all over the world, and two of them are preserved for us in the New Testament. We know them as First and Second Peter. And so here we are 2,000 years later benefiting from the Holy Spirit's work in Peter, from the transformation that the Holy Spirit worked in Peter, taking him from this brash, impulsive, foot-in-mouth, Jesus-denying kind of guy to this person of faith who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was his Lord, that Jesus was his Savior, that Jesus was his God. And what was the difference between the Peter of the Gospels, the Peter of the book of Acts? I think it was the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life. And it's pretty amazing to think that we have living in us one who wants to help us to have hearts for God, who wants to help us to live lives that are pleasing to God. And what we need to do is what Peter did and look to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, change my heart. Give me a heart that loves people the way that you love people. Give me a heart that cares about people the way that you care about people. And then enable me, give me the strength, give me the courage, give me the wisdom to live out the heart that you are beginning to develop in me. And that's an incredible thought that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, enabling us to do that. And then there's something else, even beyond that, that the Holy Spirit does. The Apostle Paul, one of the other leaders of the early church, writes this in the book of Romans. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. And this word Abba is the Aramaic equivalent of what we might say today, Dad. It's this, it's this idea of a child going to his or her father, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that dad loves me, that dad cares about me, that dad wants to do everything in his power to bless me, to do good for me, to encourage me, to comfort me when I'm discouraged. And Paul is saying, we don't need to approach God the Father in fear. We don't need to be afraid that he's going to turn us away or that he's going to be angry with us. Yes, we are sinners and God hates that sin. But because of what Jesus has done, God looks at us and he embraces us as his children. And the Holy Spirit says to us, you don't need to be afraid. You can go to God and say, Abba, Father, Dad, thank you that I'm your child. Thank you that you love me. And come to him and ask him for help and for guidance, for whatever we want to ask him for, knowing that he loves us and that he cares for us with full confidence that he like Jesus, loves us more than we could ever imagine because that's the kind of God who he is. And when you think about it, we talked about the Trinity uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's exactly what's going on in this passage of Romans. We see the Holy Spirit speaking to us to remind us that because of what the Son, Jesus, has done, we can approach the Father with confidence rather than fear, knowing that he loves us, that he cares about us, and that he wants to bless us more than we can ever imagine. So it's just amazing to think about the role of the Holy Spirit as that advocate, as that helper, as that comforter, as the one who reminds us that if we're trusting in Jesus, we're God's children. We have been adopted by him and he loves us more than we could ever imagine. I know, I know that what Jesus said was right when he says, it's for your good that I go away because if I don't go away, then the advocate's not gonna come and I'm going away, I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit to be with you, to continue my work in your life and in your heart. And I know that's true. I still wish that I could have dinner with Jesus because I've got so many questions I'd like to ask him. And I'm looking forward to when I get to spend eternity with him in heaven and ask him these questions. But as much as I wish that I could have dinner with Jesus and talk with him and ask him all these questions, I need to keep reminding myself that what he said is true that the Holy Spirit whom he sent is continuing his work, is applying his work to my life and to my heart, and that wherever I am doesn't have to be at dinner with Jesus. It can be when I wake up in the morning and I look out and the day looks pretty dark, maybe because my blood sugar is low or whatever it is, you know, and the day's looking pretty dark and I'm discouraged and I just say, Holy Spirit, remind me of how much God loves me. And then in spite of the darkness, in spite of the discouragement that I have, 
I have a God who loves me beyond a shadow of a doubt. Or other times when I'm afraid, when I've got to have that difficult conversation and I'm afraid that the other person's going to get angry with me, I can still say, Holy Spirit, take away that fear. Give me that confidence, not in myself, but in you, that you'll give me the words to speak to them. And even if they get mad at me, that's okay, because God loves me more than that. Or even when I've committed that sin yet again and again and again, and I've hurt somebody whom I know I love, but I don't always treat them the way that I ought to, and I'm embarrassed by that, and I'm feeling guilty by that. Holy Spirit, remind me of Jesus' great love for me and that he died for me and that I'm no longer condemned for that. And I don't need to be afraid that God is going to reject me because of that sin, because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. Holy Spirit, change my heart. Holy Spirit, change my behavior and enable me to live the way that you want me to live. Back in the Old Testament, there was a king named David, probably Israel's greatest king ever. And he wrote uh, quite a number of psalms. And psalms are a combination of sort of songs and poems and prayers kind of all wrapped up into one. One of my favorites is Psalm 139. And towards the end of that psalm, David says something that thousands of years before Jesus came, David wrote hundreds of years, actually, about a thousand years before Jesus came. David wrote this psalm, and he says something pretty amazing. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, Holy Spirit. Know my heart, know my anxious thoughts. Show me my sin, not so that I can wallow in my guilt and my shame, but so that as I turn to you and you apply Jesus' cleansing blood to my life, I can be free from that guilt. I can be free from that shame. I can be free from that feeling of condemnation. And I can live and walk in the way everlasting and live a life that's pleasing to you. What I want to do now is pray those verses for myself and for us and encourage you guys to do that even this week. Take these couple of verses at the end of Psalm 139, personalize them, make them a prayer to the Holy Spirit of God, asking him to work in your heart. So let's pray together using this passage from Psalm 139. Search me, Holy Spirit. Search us, all of us here. Know our hearts. Test us, Holy Spirit, and know our anxious thoughts because we are anxious. We are fearful. We do get worried. We worry sometimes, Holy Spirit, that because of our sin, you'll reject us. You'll turn us away. But I thank you that that's not true because of what Jesus has done. Pray that if there's any offensive way, any sin in me, in us, that you would show us not for the purpose of condemning us, but for the purpose of freeing us. And I pray that you would lead me, that you would lead us in the way everlasting, that we might live lives, that we might desire to live lives, that we might actually live lives 
that are pleasing to you, that are glorifying to you, and ultimately that point other people to Jesus because that's what you came to do, Holy Spirit. And I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.